Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, would you open up to Romans chapter 12? Romans chapter 12. I, uh, man, it is a delight for me to be back in Louisville uh, and back at Southern Seminary. My wife and I got to call this home for about four years. We actually just lived. We literally almost threw a baseball at our house just right behind chapel. I, uh, I drove by it this morning, and I, uh, I planted a tree. I took the tree home in my Nissan Altima. It was about three feet tall at the time. It's 40 feet tall now. I didn't realize I had aged that much uh, since I left Southern, but it is good to be home and good to see uh, things continuing to grow here. Dr. Muller, thank you for the kind invitation and your impact on my life, and also faculty, colleagues, friends, so many of you, even Dr. Curavilla from Dallas Seminary, Dr. Ware, Dr. Allison, so grateful for your impact on my life. Uh, you are men that I seek to emulate. I admire you, and thank you for your ministry. Okay, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I know that this is also a verse and passage that hopefully many of us are familiar with, but uh, just going to pray that God's word, by his Holy Spirit, we haven't become inoculated to God's word, but it's something that continues to transform us powerfully. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Rome. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. This is God's word. So, Romans chapter 12, he begins by saying, therefore, And as he says, therefore, he doesn't just have in mind the previous paragraph or the previous chapter. He has in mind the previous 11 chapters saying, therefore. Well, what is he saying therefore for? Paul is writing to this church in Rome that has a very distinct problem. In 49 AD, these Jewish Christians who perhaps heard the gospel from Peter at Pentecost, they go plant a church underneath the shadow of the Colosseum in a city where they say Caesar is Lord, and they begin confessing Jesus Christ is Lord. But in 49 AD, the Jews are expelled from the city of Rome, and Gentiles begin to rise to power. And if you've ever been a part of a young church plant and a power struggle and a power dynamic, the Jews came back in 54 AD, and they changed the carpet. They had changed the pews, and they're wondering, what's going on in the life of this church? And the big struggle, the big challenge that is going on in the church in Rome is, what does it look like to be a people of faith in Christ? Do we have to be Jewish in order to be Christian, or do we simply have to be Gentiles who have placed our faith in Christ? And as they begin having conversations and arguing, Paul writes them to tell them what is the gospel, and how is it meant to play out in their lives through very simple implications. Here's the summary of Romans so far. In Romans chapter one, Paul is highlighting what is our problem. And he simply says, I'm unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God to save both Jew and Gentile alike. And the righteous shall live by faith. In Romans chapters two and three, he begins highlighting that it isn't Gentiles who have faith and Jews who have faith, but anybody indiscriminately can have faith in Christ. And this is what he says in this great leveling, great equalizer verse in Romans chapter three. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They might be asking themselves this question, well, what does faith look like? And Paul highlights this pillar of faith in Abraham. 
this pillar of faith because Abraham is not justified by his spiritual heritage. He's justified by grace through faith, faith credited to him as righteousness as written in Genesis. And if you're still not with Paul yet, in Romans chapter five, I don't think he could make the gospel much clearer. He highlights simply two men. Two men as federal heads. We are either in Adam, the man born from dust but returns us to dust, dust, or we are in the man from heaven, the one who came from heaven, went down into the dust, but emerges from the grave victoriously. He's saying it that simply. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. An obvious question for them would be, should we just continue sinning so that grace may abound? And Paul answers their question so helpfully, by no means. Because how could we who have died to sin continue to live in it? And he gives us this picture of baptism. We have been buried with Christ in his death so that we might walk in newness of life. And in Romans chapter seven, he highlights what the Christian life is like. We no longer struggle, right? Everything's perfect, no issues, no problems. Of course, that's not what he says. He says, despite the fact of this good news of the gospel, the Christian life is is pictured and emulated in this idea of us sometimes still doing things that we don't want to do and not doing the very things we want to do. In Romans chapter eight, he highlights, therefore God has given you this powerful presence of his Holy Spirit so that you can walk in obedience. And then Romans 9 to 11, of course, lots of ink has been spilled over the questions of Romans 9 to 11 means. And I think one of the most important questions Paul's trying to highlight there is, can God be trusted with lost people? As this church in Rome is, is struggling with actual neighbors and coworkers and colleagues who are Jewish, the covenantal people of God, and they're realizing, is this person going to be saved? And what God, and what through Paul says, I believe, is that we preach the gospel indiscriminately to all people because we believe that Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, free and slave, male and female, all can come to faith in Christ Jesus. So yes, we can trust God. So what has God done so far, Romans 1 to 11, is we simply see how merciful God is to his creation through Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul opens here in Romans chapter 12 by saying, therefore, pointing back to Romans 1 to 11, in view of the mercies of God. I was thinking of an experience that I had uh, when I was living in Dallas, and I, uh, any Aggies in here, by the way? A couple Aggies, they're a little ashamed of it right now, which is a shocker. Uh, but, uh, so I got to go down to a ministry called Breakaway. Breakaway is a ministry down at, at uh, Texas A&M College Station, and it's college ministry, one of the largest college ministries in America, and I was there teaching and preaching and having a wonderful time. It just so happened that that was a Thursday and Friday evening that I was there, and on Saturday, uh, the Aggies were playing Alabama, the Crimson Tide. Uh, this is, I think, the first year that, that uh, Texas A&M was in the SEC, so it was a really kind of significant game. I, of course, didn't have tickets to the game. I just, I just happened to be there. My previous pastor had tickets to the game and invited me to a tailgate party right before the game. So if we're thinking about Kyle Field, where Texas A&M plays, being right here, like right where this wall would be, his tailgate was like right here. He was obviously a big donor, very influential at Texas A&M. I don't know anybody there except my previous pastor. I show up, there's probably 100 people at this tailgate, and there is a man, and if you've ever been in a situation like this, you'll resonate with this. He comes up and he grabs me by the shoulders. One of those moments you realize I'm no longer in charge of my life. (laughs) And he kind of shakes me, and he says, do you want to go down on the field? Now, as a rule follower, part of me was like, no, I don't have a ticket. 
As an enormous college football fan, I'm like, absolutely. Romans chapter seven, once again, I feel this. I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm supposed to do this moment. And so I say, oh, sure. And so three or four of us begin walking towards Kyle Field to, to get on the field. And I don't have any credentials. I've got no pass. I've got no pass. I've got no ticket. Everybody else has everything that they need. And we kind of are, we're marching through this security line. And there's a, a woman taking uh, kind of tickets and looking at everybody's uh, security credentials. And we get through the line. And we get to this woman. And she says, may I see your credentials, please? I said, I don't have any. And he just says, He's with me. And we walked through. We get on the field for about an hour. We're watching practice. We actually then are on the field after this hour. And he says to me, do you want to run onto the field with the Aggies? Romans chapter seven. No, I'm having this moment <laughs> of I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do this. Uh, so we go back into this kind of concrete tunnel and I'm, this is, I'm not making an ounce of this up. This is not preacher language. This actually happened in my life. Nick Saban runs right, in the, the Crimson Tide run right in front of the Aggies. I'm like at the very front. I am so close to Nick Saban, I could have tripped him. And that, I didn't, which shows that that's progressive sanctification. As a Husker fan, every Husker would have told me to, but I didn't. They run by, and then with, without hesitation, we then begin running on to Kyle Field. I have a video selfie of running on to Kyle Field against the Crimson Tide with the Texas A&M Aggies, and I'm not even an Aggie fan. There are Aggies in this room who right now are like, I can't believe he got to do it. But I got to do it. Why? Simply because somebody with the credentials said, he's with me. When we think about Romans chapter 12, and therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, we're simply able to say, when we enter into the kingdom, do you have the credentials? And in view of the mercies of God, Jesus Christ simply says, he is with me. She's with me. So the Christian life is not an attempt to earn God's love. It's simply a response to God's love. Therefore, in the mercies of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, Maybe you're here and you're walking through a challenging season, jacked up, broken, sad, maybe overwhelmed by sin. And my reminder to you this morning is that the entirety of the Christian life, all of it, all of ministry, all relationships, everything that belongs to Jesus, listen, is not in search of God's mercy, but is in view of it. Look at how beautiful and how merciful Christ has been to us. A bunch of broken and weak sinners with no credentials of our own to offer. And it's a reminder for ourselves at such a wonderful institution to continually remind ourselves that our ministry does not qualify us to enter into the kingdom. It's Jesus's ministry that qualifies us to enter into the kingdom. So brother or sister, the king says of you, he or she is with me. My first question for you briefly is, are you in need of being reminded that your life isn't in search of the mercy of God, but in view of it. So Paul says just a few things in light of our life being in view of the mercy of God. He says this, I urge you then to present your, 
And I try to imagine this letter being read to the church at Rome and what they would have thought Paul might have said. Yes, here again we have Jew and Gentile alike, very familiar with sacrifices, very familiar with offering things in order to be in a right relationship with God. Perhaps they think he's now going to remind us that we have to offer a lamb or a goat or a dove. What is Paul going to ask us to sacrifice now? He says, I urge you to present or to sacrifice your bodies. What a shocking phrase in turn for the people in Rome who again are very familiar with presenting dead things, things that were once alive, now dead before God. He says, offer your bodies, your whole, this means your, your whole self, not just your physical body, but everything you had. You might be reminded of Jesus' phrase with all of your head, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. How shocking this language would be that dead animals were once presented, but now alive bodies are presented. God wants more than your ministry offerings. He wants all of you. He says that we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God as our true story of worship. So obviously, one of the things that we're passionate about at Southern and in the kingdom of God is conversion. We want to see dead hearts come alive. I think about John chapter three and Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. We want to see someone who was born of the water also to be born of the spirit. I think of Ezekiel and dry bones becoming alive or Colossians being transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's son. Part of the good news of the gospel is that God takes dead things and makes them alive, amen? Briefly, my story is I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't understand the gospel growing up. I had a Bible with a skateboarder on it. You know, remember one of those cool teen study Bibles, which apparently my parents thought was gonna make me read it. It didn't. Uh, and I went to Colorado State University, as you've heard, and I, can, I, was at a, I was placed with a roommate named Hunter. He invited me to a campus crusade Bible study, um, probably 15, 16 weeks in a row. And I kept saying no, I just had no interest in going. I didn't sense that I had that God-sized hole in my heart. I was just a young college student, totally uninterested in going to Bible study. He finally asks me one last time and I say, okay, I'll, I'll go. I only find out that it's a men's Bible study in the laundry room of the men's dorm in the basement. Evangelicals are weird sometimes. <laughs> I go and they open up and the, the, the leader says, he was a sophomore named Nate, he says, would you open your Bibles to the book of Jonah? So I take my teen study Bible and I begin to open it up and I, I just, all I know how to do to find Bible passages is to thumb through. I was really uh, disappointed that we weren't in Psalms because that one was easy to find. I couldn't find Jonah. I begin to feel like a fraud, like I don't belong, like I am somehow an outsider. Then I begin thinking to myself, since I don't know the Bible, I don't know the story of the Bible, I'm totally unfamiliar with scripture, that maybe Jonah is like an extra canonical text that this cult has that I don't have. And then I realized I can't go to the table of contents. Why? Because then you're really outed. Sophomore next to me, Nate, takes his finger and opens his, my Bible for me to Jonah chapter two. And I heard for the very first time that God is merciful to sinners. It's a message that changed my life. The next morning, he takes me to lunch uh, at the student union and he buys me Burger King. And he, uh, I'm eating a Whopper and he takes out the four spiritual laws, a track that crew used to use to talk about the gospel. And in the most uncompelling gospel presentation, 
in the history of gospel presentations, not because it was a tract, but because he didn't make eye contact with me. He simply said, I'm supposed to read this to you. <laughs> and he says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You're a sinner separated from God. Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins and you can have everlasting life in him. Would you like to do that? <laughs> and the Holy Spirit converted me. Which shows, this isn't part of the sermon, it shows that gospel presentations don't save people, God does. Therefore, we share the gospel indiscriminately with anybody who will hear, as simply as we can, even by reading somebody the four spiritual laws. It felt like the heavens opened up. It felt like dry bones coming alive. My, my, my heart of stone was converted to a heart of flesh. I was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. But it's important what Paul is saying here, that conversion is not the touchdown of the Christian life. It's simply the kickoff. Now, in view of the mercies of God, Romans 1 to 11, grace is free. It's now going to cost you your whole life. And friends, we are not just called to make decisions for Christ. We are called to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The Christian life starts with a decision. It starts with conversion, but now it transforms into this life that totally belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus told the church to make disciples. Conversion, new life, grace is free. It costs us nothing, but discipleship will cost you everything. So now we sacrifice ourselves, Paul's saying. We pour ourselves out in view of the mercies of God. I urge you, present your whole selves as a living and holy sacrifice. We pour our whole selves out. We no longer offer dead animals, but our whole selves. That's the simplest way to say it. At one time there was animals that were once alive, killed, presented to God. Now, dead people have been made alive and present their whole selves to God. Ultimately, what Paul is saying here is you can't compartmentalize your life. God doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. I had a, I had a pastoral meeting a few weeks back and it's this, it's this man who genuinely, I believe, wants to follow God and kind of grew up in a post-Christian secular background, has, has been converted and is now trying to figure out what, what does the Christian life look like? How do, I, how do I maintain this marriage and how do I raise these kids and how do I coach my son's basketball team and what am I supposed to do with church and school and work and relationships and my family's athletic calendar and finances. And, and one of the things that I was trying to help him understand is, is now we don't just offer a dead sacrifice. We offer our whole selves that, that Jesus doesn't want part of your life. He wants all of your life. A few weeks back after that, uh, I was, we celebrated my wife's birthday. Uh, we live in Arvada, Colorado, and the best food that we have there is Qdoba. So I took her to Denver because we did not just want like skillet queso. So we go downtown, big night on the city. Uh, we, I take her down, I, I ask some friends, what's a wonderful restaurant in Denver that, I, that we've never been to? And they recommend this Chinese restaurant. So we show up and it is, it is simply amazing. It's kind of one of these family style restaurants where we had like five or six different courses and they're bringing out dumplings that melt in your, I mean, it's just amazing, amazing food. And then I, I invite her, since it's her birthday, I said, Macy, would you, would you like to, uh, what would you like to eat since we're not ordering separate entree plates? And she, she picks out this meal that had like two or three things I was really excited about, steak, 
this wonderful rice, but it also had like bok choy. As you gotta be honest, I was not thrilled about the decision. I wanted to compartmentalize the meal. Macy, you can have the bok choy and I'll have the steak. And then I realized there was this, you know, we wait five or 10 minutes, the meal eventually comes out and it has this sauce on the side of it. And the waiter helps us understand that this sauce, this is the sauce that you want to drizzle over all of it. You want this on your steak, you want this on your rice, you want this on the egg, you want it on the cabbage, you want it on the bok choy. I mean, it can't be worse without the sauce. And what I realized as I was thinking about this meal is that this sauce, which made this meal one of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Like, I cannot wait to go back to this restaurant. Top five meal I've ever had. And it was all because this sauce was not compartmentalized. It was like this gospel glaze that made bok choy absolutely amazing. And in the same way, Paul is offering us a simple picture that you don't present this part of your life as a sacrifice or this part of your life as a sacrifice. You present your whole self as a sacrifice. And I think, just speaking to, to ministers of the gospel and people who are giving their lives to Christ, that's something that I know is simple for me to do that might be easy for you to do as well as sometimes we can begin to think, I will offer my ministry as a sacrifice for Christ. And unknowingly we realize we have compartmentalized other parts of our lives, saying you can have my preaching, you can have my writing, you can have my teaching, you can have my counseling, but you can't have this. And we of all people should be the ones who are reminded in view of the mercies of God, grace is free, but discipleship costs us everything. Is there anything this morning perhaps that you have compartmentalized? Maybe you've compartmentalized your ministry, relationships, health, finances. Paul says, give it all to Christ. He says in verse two, do not be conformed to this age. Because of the institution you're at, you know, perhaps better than most, that you do not live, we do not live in a neutral world. Everyone is being discipled. You can't not be formed. You can't not be shaped. This world is attempting to disciple people, you, the people that you minister to, or the people that you'll minister to in the future. And perhaps more powerfully than ever, this word of, of, of uh, conform, don't be conformed, is kind of this idea of external pressure, this pressure of maybe family or job or politics in the news. And what Paul's literally saying is do not let the pressure of this world get to you. Don't be shaped and conformed into the image of this age. He says, rather be transformed, this idea of internal, radical reorientation to God and to neighbor. How? By the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Renewal, transformation, being made new is a distinctly Christian idea. This internal transformation that comes through the proclamation of God's word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I've got, uh, like Dr. Moeller mentioned earlier, I've got two young kiddos. I didn't have kids when I was a student here. I sat right in that row when I graduated with my PhD and my son was still in Macy's womb. He's now almost eight. Uh, one of our favorite traditions around the holidays now is we love to make 
cookies. And again, you've, maybe you've learned this about my personality. I'm kind of a clean rule follower. My wife is not. It's like a flower bonanza. Uh, there's just flour on every single cabinet. My little girl, Bailey, who's five, has like flour all over her face. And I was preaching this passage at our church and was thinking to myself, here, here are my son and daughter literally shaping and forming these beautiful cookies into, into hats or to snowmen or to Christmas trees. And this dough is being shaped and formed. It's succumbing to the pressure of the cookie cutter is similar to what this world is trying to do to you, to shape, to form. And I thought to myself, this is kind of a silly image, but I think it's true nevertheless. What Paul is saying here is you can have the internal fortitude to not be transformed, uh, form, conformed to this world, but be transformed of the renewal of your mind because you fundamentally now have Romans chapter eight, the spirit of God with you. You're no longer cookie cutter dough that can be shaped and formed by a simple seven-year-old pressing her hand down with a cookie cutter. It's much more like you are an oak tree and it's impossible for an oak tree to be shaped and formed by a cookie cutter. You can literally be internally transformed in view of the mercies of God. Therefore, your anxiety can be transformed to fortitude. Your doubt can be faith. Your pain can be strength. Your battle can be victory. Your death can be life. Sin can be transformed to obedience. Idolatry, idolatry can be transformed to true worship. Greed can become generosity. The comparison that maybe you experience with a colleague or a coworker can be transformed to contentment. And your frustration can be transformed to compassion. Maybe another way to say it is that the gospel is not just justification, but also sanctification. That you, Romans chapter one to 11, can live all of life in view of the mercies of God. And it's because of the mercies of God that the Holy Spirit now uses God's grace and mercy to us to allow us to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. In other words, in light of God's mercy, you don't just have forgiveness. You also have the power to be transformed by God's Holy Spirit. The last question I have for you before I pray is simple. Are you in need of this renewal? Just a simple spiritual renewal. Perhaps you've lost sight of the mercies of God in your studies, you've lost sight in the mercies of God of your responsibilities. All of us are in need of coming back to this simple gospel message where we say, in view of the mercies of God, I can be transformed through the renewal of my mind, through the preaching of God's word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna invite us just to pray and ask God to continually bring renewal to us, his people. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, it is so good to gather with your people and sing your praise to say that you are good and holy and righteous and that we, your people, you have made us, shaped and formed us in our mother's womb. We bear your image, full of dignity and value and worth, but our brokenness is also so present. Our sinfulness, our disobedience, our waywardness, and how we sometimes just simply, like sheep, go astray. 
We're so grateful for this simple gospel that this morning reminds us that we live in view of your mercy, that the greatest identity we have is not one that's been achieved, but simply received because of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Until he comes, and if he tarries, would you renew your people by your spirit? Would you remind us of your presence with us, of your care for us, and your ministry to us? Help us, your people, to not be conformed to this world, but continually be transformed by the renewal of our mind. It's in Christ's matchless and powerful name that we pray. Amen.